There are two kinds of people in this world when it comes to looking for things you've lost. There are men and there are women. <laughs> women, do you know what I'm talking about here? I know my wife could uh, relate to this. Uh, when a man loses his keys, he says to his wife, I can't find my keys. And she says, where have you looked? And he says, well, I, I left them on the dresser. So where'd you look? Well, I looked on the dresser. And the wife says, well, did you look between the couch cushions? Did you look in the ice maker? Have you, have you looked everywhere? And she'll look everywhere. But the guy, he's like one track. It's just, it's biology. If, if you ask women frustratedly, why are, why are we this way? It, you, why ask why? I think about the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, because it kind of fits that a little bit, a little bit that imagery. You have, of course, the parable of, of the shepherd with a sheep, and he, and he leaves the 99 and he goes out and he looks for that one sheep. But the story of the lost coin, which is really telling most of the exact same information, more or less, but told a different way, it, ha it depicts the idea of God looking for the lost. It puts it in the context of a woman who's lost a coin in her home. And it tells us that she, she takes the place apart. She gets her broom and she gets a lamp lit and she goes throughout top, you know, stem to stern. She looks throughout that until she finds the coin. And that kind of, that not only illustrates the difference between men and women, it, it really gets at the idea of how God goes after the lost. And, and we're going to look at this. I want to lay a little bit of sort of the groundwork here. We're back in Acts, and uh, you'll get tired of me saying the same things over and over, but it's important that we see the big trajectory of the book of Acts. And maybe you're already on top of this, and you know where I'm going to go with that. But it's the idea of the expansion of the kingdom of God. You go back to Acts chapter 1, 8, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and, and you know sort of the rest of the story. Where are we at now? And to understand the message today, you really have to understand it in the context of where we are. If you get the context, if you see how it fits, it starts to make sense. Last time, we were at 931. 931, we just did a whole sermon on one text because it was such this, this fulcrum kind of moment upon which everything teeter-totters and we go from the, the mission to the Jewish people on toward the mission of the Gentiles. And that mission to the Gentiles is just about to break forth. Which as Gentiles, on the one hand, we look at that and we go, woohoo, <laughs> yay rah. We're gonna get past all of these very Hebrew sounding names to names that we can relate to like Timothy and good, good stuff like that. And yay, we get included. Isn't that, a good, isn't that a good thing? Jesus though was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew, his ministry was to the Jews, and many believed in him, but many were hardened, and they rejected him in mass on, on, on sort of the level, I mean, the, the rulers of the people and others in leadership rejected Christ, and that's part of why you see things go the way they do and why there's the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Where are we at today in this passage? We are at a moment where we are going to see the last two healing miracles done in the Old Testament land of Israel. Do you realize that? Yeah, you think about all the healings now that have taken place through Jesus. 
through the, through the Gospel of Luke. We spent how long going through the Gospel of Luke and healing and driving out demons and raising the dead. It was just it was like a daily occurrence for us, wasn't it, when we were going through the book of Luke. And then you get to the, the book of Acts and you have the work of the apostles, that ongoing work of Christ through his apostles, and people are being healed. But now as we get toward that end of that sort of Jewish mission, we are at the last two healing miracles in the land of Israel. And although, again, it means that we now are included, we who are Gentiles by birth, it could also bother us. And let me tell you why. You're like, well, why would that bother you? Aren't we a bit like Israel in the United States today? Aren't we just a tad bit like them? And I mean this, we are a people long saturated by the word of God. The word of God came to these shores hundreds of of years ago and there are churches on every corner but honestly ask yourself this do you believe there's a hunger for God today in this country do you do you believe that by and large in our country there is a fear of God and it kind of makes you feel I don't know if you this is my impression I kind of feel like we wouldn't be that far away from judgment just as The events that we're reading today were about 30 years, maybe a little less than 30 years before the big destruction that was going to come on Jerusalem in 70 AD. So we're back in the early 40s at this point. Um, How many decades does America have left at the rate we're going, at at the rate of decline? And specifically, again, I'm talking about spiritual interest. Will God patiently seek and save the lost? here in the, in the good old U.S. of A., or, or has that time passed? And this is where I'm getting to with the, with, with the point of our sermon today. Even though God clearly has intentions to reach the uttermost parts of the world, and I wouldn't doubt that the kingdom of God in terms of really the focus of so much of what has happened is no longer here in the United States, if it ever was. I kind of feel that way. But here's, here's the thing I want you to see. Our sovereign Lord leaves no stone unturned as he calls his people. And that should make us happy. That should give us hope. He is persistent. God, you can say a lot of things about God, but one thing you have to say is God is persistent. He's like that widow looking for the coin. He's really determined, isn't he? He's going after, and and again, he leaves no stone unturned as to place and person and path. And I alliterated today, so how about that? If you're really into alliteration, it finally happened. Woohoo! Because you know sermons are better if you alliterate everything. I found that out long ago. But um, first off, the Lord leaves no stun, stone unturned as to place. The apostles are big picture guys. They, the apostles are not identical to a pastor in terms of their role because for the most part, although you, know, you have Paul at some point staying in a city for a couple years, by and large, they did not oversee a single congregation. They oversaw whole regions and, and multiple churches, uh, and they tend to move around. Look what Peter's doing here. It looks aimless. For all the world, it sounds aimless. It says, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Do you get the kind of random sort of appearance of that? He went here and there. He's an apostle. He was doing what apostles did. He didn't, he didn't just stay in one place. And, and the gospel had come to Lydda probably because of the 
dispersion that happened after the death of Stephen, and he comes, he comes just, just happens, he sort of happens into the city of Lydda. At this point, most of Israel has been reached. Recall that from 931. You had Judea, Samaria, Galilee. The church there is flourishing. But we can say, safely say, that not every stone at this point has been turned over. The path, the directionality, if you will, is heading toward the coast and then up the coast towards Caesarea and toward the mission to the Gentiles. But there are pockets of Israel that have not been reach to the uttermost. Lydda, you say, Lydda, where was Lydda? Do you like geography? I don't really like geography, so but I have to cover it. Uh, Lydda was about halfway between Jerusalem and the coastline. As you went from Jerusalem to Joppa, it was about sort of that, the halfway point. And there are already saints there by the time Peter gets there. Recall that saints does not mean what you think of when you, well, maybe you think correctly of the word saints. Saints just means believers. It doesn't mean a special category of believer. But the Lord brings Peter there, and when he's there, many will come to Christ. We're going to cover that in a moment. After Lydda, though, he goes further, all the way to Joppa, which was actually on the coast If you really want to know this, Joppa was the most significant seaport along the Mediterranean for Israel. It was pretty much the seaport until Caesarea came along. The Romans kind of established uh, Caesarea, which is where we're going to go next. But uh, up until then, Joppa was the seaport. That's where, you know, if if your name was Jonah and you wanted to catch a quick ship to Tarshish, that's where you would have gotten on. And And again, the movement here, it just, it kind of seems random. Peter was going here and there, he's at Lydda, and then it just so happens, they just happen to hear, coincidentally to the death of Tabitha, or Dorcas if you prefer, um, coincidental to that, uh, oh, Peter's down in Lydda, which isn't that far away. All I want you to see at this moment, though, is the whole thing of place, that the Lord was sovereignly putting Peter into these places, into nooks and crannies, none of, you know, which, which were going to be exposed to the gospel. That's the part we need to grab a hold of. The Lord is thorough, even with his Old Testament, especially maybe with his Old Testament people, Israel, even as the gospel's getting ready to go out and hit the Gentiles, it's like that, sh- that gospel light has to shine into every little, st- in, in, into every tiny nook and cranny. He's thorough. Do you remember the thoroughness of God when it came to Sodom and Gomorrah? See, I think, we're t- I think our fear is that God paints with a really big brush and we fear that his people are going to be missed when he, when he sweeps with that, that kind of big brush. That's what Abraham, who was called Abram at the time, feared when God came through and he says, I'm going to destroy Sodom. You know the story. And, and, and Abram's like, well, whoa, whoa, wait a second. You guys, my, my nephew, Lot, he's down there. Um, would you destroy the city if there were 50 righteous? No, I won't destroy if there's 50, right? Well, what about 45? What about 40? What about 35? What about 30? Can you give 20? 20, when you give 10? 10, he bargains him down to 10. And even then, it's not as though he destroys the city with the 10 in it. He goes and, and he brings Lot and his family out. God is thorough. And that, 
gives me hope. I hope it gives you hope. There are prodigals that I pray for that are in nooks and crannies here still in the good old U.S. of A. And I know that in the big scheme of things, we're a wicked nation. I know that we have had centuries of the gospel being here and being proclaimed. And I know that hearts are hardened. But it comforts me. It comforts me to see that God persists in seeking to save the lost the lost among his people. He leaves no stone unturned. And that, I believe, is true whether we're talking about Israel, whether we're talking about Lydda, or we're talking about Joppa, Caesarea, Great Bend, Larned, Norfolk, Virginia, wherever, wherever we, we have hope that God is thorough and that God will turn over every stone. Secondly, he leaves no stone unturned as to persons. First person that comes into view here is a guy. What a character. Aeneas. What a, huh? Does he just not come to life? Does he not just spring from the pages? You know what I'm saying? Aeneas. Did he jump out at you really in a strong way? Yeah, we don't know that much about the guy, do we? I'm being completely facetious. We know almost nothing about him. He may have been a saint. He may not have been a saint. Just because he was there and Peter finds him doesn't mean that he was to be identified in the church there. And, uh, and what does it say? There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. So what do we know about Aeneas? He was bedridden and paralyzed. That's, that's all we know. He probably, you can put two and two together and you can kind of infer certain things. You can say, well, you know, if he was paralyzed for eight years, then probably the fellow, his fellow Jews, if he was among the Jews, he probably would have been seen as a sinner because typically they looked upon somebody who had a great hardship like that as having brought it upon themselves. So he's probably, you know, looked down upon in, in many respects. He was certainly miserable. Can, can you grant me that? You're, you're, you're paralyzed, you're in a, a primitive culture, there are no uh, you know, facilities like we have today, people are not getting paid you know, to be professional caregivers. He's probably dependent on just whoever happens to stop in, maybe a friend or a fam, family member. He's paralyzed, he can do nothing for himself. Beyond that, we don't know if he was a saint or a sinner or a beloved or despised or rich or poor, we, we don't know. At this, at this point, what do we know? We know that the, in the sovereignty of God, Peter finds him. Now, when it says Peter found him, does it mean that Peter was looking for him? Sometimes when you find things, you're not looking for those things, and I think that's what's meant here. He finds him the way you are walking on some random beach somewhere. Oh, to be walking on a random beach somewhere, huh? And you're walking on that random beach and you look down and there are random seashells and so you randomly pick up a random shell and you can say, oh, I found this shell. And that's, that's but, but within that, it is the sovereignty of God at work. Now, look ahead to the story in Joppa. There we know a lot more about the kind of person that's found. It says, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, That explains a lot, doesn't it? She was full of good works and acts of charity. Dorcas. Um, You have the baby boomers to thank for this, but somewhere in the 1960s, we started using a word called dork, and that ruined that name forever. Anybody thinking about naming their baby daughter or granddaughter, you know, Dorcas? Is that a big 
Anybody have an Aunt Dorcas here? No, no Aunt Dorcas's. Okay, it, it's not a great name, is it? Not in the current culture with, with what, we, what we did to that word. But um, it says, well, it's Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas, and that makes very little sense. But in Greek, uh, it means gazelle. And Tabitha in Hebrew, Aramaic, means gazelle. So that's what it is. It's a beautiful name. It's a, as, as ugly a sounding name that, that nobody would want to give today, given the, the, the reference dork. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a beautiful name. It means gazelle. She was a beautiful person. Not because of her name, but she really is. She, it says, is a disciple of Jesus. Was Aeneas a disciple of Jesus? We don't know, right? We don't know. But she was a disciple. She is a special person. In fact, try this one on for size. This is the only place in the New Testament where the word disciple is used in a feminine form of the verb, of the noun. Can you believe that? Isn't that strange? Now, that's not saying there weren't other female disciples, because disciple just means a follower of Christ. So there were lots and lots of disciples, male and female. But isn't it interesting that here, with regard to Tabitha or Dorcas, it's the only time it's actually used, which gives her a lot of street cred. I think it does anyway. And uh, apparently she was a person who put her faith where her mouth was. She uh, could have been a person of means. Doesn't necessarily mean that she was. It could be that she just used every dime she had for sewing things for other people. But that's what you see about her, that she is just an engaged disciple of Christ. It says, so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the uh, widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. What does that say about her? She was a beloved woman, a disciple of Jesus, a hard worker. She used her skills. She used her labor in real ministry. Now, what is her predicament? Aeneas, his predicament was he had been paralyzed for eight years. What is Dorcas's predicament? She is dead. She is not currently breathing. That, that is, her, is her problem. Um, in his case, he had been dependent on charity for, oh, I don't know, eight years. For eight years, he wasn't doing anything for anyone else. Everyone had to do for him. But in her case, she had given all of her time and her effort to other people. In Aeneas' case, whose, whose misery are we looking at? His, I heard it, his misery. He's the one that's miserable. He may be making the lives of some of the people around him miserable in the process. I don't know, but basically it's his misery. But when it comes to Tabitha, she's okay, isn't she? What is the, the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be, class, present with the Lord. So from all that we know, scripturally speaking, and we don't know a lot about this first moments or hours after death, but, but we know that she was with the Lord and it was okay. But the misery is the people around who, these widows who are just weeping, they're so devastated by her loss. She had died after taking ill, which sounds like mm, not very long maybe hours, maybe a few days. He was sick after eight years. It says they washed her body in preparation for burial. Well, it doesn't say for preparation for burial, but that's why they would have washed the body, and they laid it in an upper room in verse 37. And going back to 
what we said earlier, by God's providence as they've laid her there in the upper room, what are they thinking at that point after they've bathed her body and put it there? Get her ready for burial. We're, we're, we're gonna be putting her in the ground. But then they hear that in Lydda, it just so happens, some strange coincidence, that Peter is there. You know, there's almost no similarity between Aeneas and Tabitha. They were probably both Jewish. They may have been both believers. That, that's pretty much where, where the similarity ends. They, they both fell ill. Uh, it, it is true, both suffered from the consequences of sin. Not, not saying their own sin, but the, the general consequences of sin are sickness and death, right? So, that, so they were similar in that sense, but that was where the similarity ends. But Christ's power reaches both of them. Both experience incredible healing, and through their healing, many, many people end up hearing the gospel and are saved eternally. That should encourage us. Encourage us. The Lord leaves no stone unturned in seeking to pour out his healing grace. We see him pour out his healing grace on Tabitha, who is a beautiful person, a worthy, noble person. If somebody deserved grace, which, of course, it wouldn't be grace if you deserved it, but if, if anybody deserved the Lord's power to be used and manifested in their life, it was Dorcas, right? But then you look at Aeneas. What had, what had Aeneas done to deserve it? The Lord seeks and saves the lost, and that should be our confident hope. We may be praying for people who don't deserve the grace of God. How many here would be praying for people who don't deserve the grace of God? You should be, because none of us deserve the grace of God. This gives me hope, whether it's Aeneas or whether it's Dorcas, whatever kind of person it is, God seeks to save those who are lost. And finally, he leaves no stone unturned as to path. And uh, I use the term path because it begins with P. And at this point, after two P words, I just decided, yeah, I'm going to find a third one. And uh, pastors do that kind of thing. But, but by path, I mean way, means, by manner. Uh, look at the healing of Aeneas. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. I don't think this stre stretched Peter's faith that much. Is that irreverent for me to say? I, do you? He had already healed a man who was, who was uh, lame at the, at the gate called Beautiful. There seems to be no hesitation. There's not a lengthy prayer involved beforehand. He just, in that apostolic authority by faith, he looks at Aeneas and, and he just tells him in the name of Jesus to take up his bed and, and go. We'll call that path number one. That was kind of the easy path. But it's, uh, it isn't done in precisely the same way with regard to Tabitha. We'll call that path number two. Look at, uh, look at how that one goes. Reminds you a lot of the story of the healing of Jairus' daughter. How many remember that? That's the one where, he, you know, he's, he, he's a synagogue ruler and he comes and he asks Jesus, he pleads with him to come and heal his daughter, but on the way, so they, they interrupt him and they say, look, your, your daughter's already dead, don't bother him. Jesus just tells him to have faith and believe and they go and Jesus puts everyone out, you remember? And he says to the young girl who's dead, um, Talitha kum, which we're told is the Aramaic, which we're told is translated maiden arise. 
And then, of course, the girl rises. Look at what happens here. But Peter put them all outside. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and she saw Peter. When she saw Peter, she uh, sat up. By the way, I love how it says turning to the body. Turning to the body. Because that says something, doesn't it? The spirit has left her. She is at that moment um, with the Lord in spirit, but her body is still there. So um, it's not fully Tabitha. I only make that point because you will run into some, I would consider most of these cults, although there, there's, I can, there's one that's kind of marginal that, that holds this belief of, of the idea that we are just one thing. There are some Christians, <laughs> air quotes, who, um, who believe that you are just you, your body, and that there's no way of disentangling body and spirit. You're just one thing. So when you're dead, according to that view, you're dead, you're in the grave, and you're waiting for the resurrection when you, when you will be reborn and, and reconstituted, and, and then you'll all be you again. But you can't be a separated spirit and body. That's sort of the view. But it, as you look at it there, she's a body at that point. It's, it's, it's a body, and Peter is in this room with a dead body. He puts people away. Now, that's the first thing I would not do. If I'm in a room with a dead body, the last thing I'm ever going to do is ask everyone else to leave. But, um, but you understand why he did it. It's not that simple, nonchalant, just saying, hey, get up and rise. This is a challenge. Can you imagine what's going through Peter's mind? You got all these women are weeping, and he's like, oh, I can't think. I don't know. And he puts them out of the room, and he shuts the door. And what does he do? He doesn't walk over and look at the body. How do you know that? Because later it says he turned and looked at the body. So what are we to believe? It says he knelt down and prayed. He hit his knees. He's not looking at the body. And I, what did he pray? Does anybody know? It doesn't say. How long did he pray? I don't know. I know what I'd be. I'd be sweating. I, I, I would have my hands, you know, my head buried in my hands, and I'd be like, Lord, I don't, do not know what to do here at all. I, give me the faith. I can't raise somebody from the dead. And I almost wonder if in that moment, if, if Christ reminded him of the, of the healing of the little girl, because this is an interesting point. What he said to the little girl, what Jesus said to the little girl in Aramaic was Talitha kum. And what Peter says to Tabitha is only different by one letter. Did you know that? In Aramaic, there'd be only one letter difference. Instead of saying Talitha kum, it would have been Tabitha kum. I wonder if the Lord just set it up that way to embolden Peter's faith. And it's at that point after having prayed that he turns and he commands her to rise. As different as these two miracles are in terms of the pathway, there's a similarity in the way they end. In both cases, he's saying, get up. In the case of the, of the paralyzed man, he's saying, get up, take your bed. And in the case of, of Tabitha, he's saying, get up from the dead. Different paths, same result. Both end with a temporary healing. When I say a temporary healing, I don't want you to think that I mean to say by that that the next day Tabitha died again. 
Is that, that's kind of like some of the modern so-called miracles that you hear about by these faith healers when people follow them uh, to see what the evidence is. They'll find that somebody comes to a, a big show and every, it's all on TV and the guy tells him to get up and he, and he struggles out of his wheelchair and people, oh, well, this is New Testament miracle time again. And then the people that follow that will often find that the very next day the guy's back in a wheelchair. That's not what I mean when I say a temporary healing here. They, they are both healed, but here's, here's why it's temporary. To my knowledge, they're both dead, okay? Aeneas, dead. Tabitha, dead. Alive with the Lord, but it, their bodies have, have long since, you know, pretty much turned to dust. It was temporary in that sense. But they both show forth the power of Christ, and in doing so, they lead to revival where people receive the ultimate healing of eternal life. Both paths end in lost people coming to the Lord. Look what it says of Lydda. It says, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, which was the bigger region there, saw and turned to the Lord. So there's a massive revival, massive revival. And in Joppa, it says, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Again, same outcome, this great revival. The miracles are not the same. In one sense, we could almost say the miracles don't matter, but they both result in the word of the Lord being proclaimed and people coming to faith, and I love that. As the chapter is closing on the Jewish mission and the Gentile one is about to begin, we see the Lord doing exactly what we expect the Lord to do. He's turning over every stone throughout Israel. That ought to give us hope. If you're praying for people that are lost and you read that, or if your desire is to be somebody who shares the gospel, this ought to give you hope. Uh, it, it, God isn't done with the people here in this country. Now, some people are called to be missionaries to, uh, I don't know if you follow uh, missionary literature at all, but they're going to UPGs. How many have heard that or seen that? And you wonder, what's a UPG? How many know what a UPG is? An unreached people group. And I am so glad that as a church that we have money going and we even have had people leave our church and, and go and they are serving in, in missions and, and they are going to unreached people. Hallelujah. And is God at work in that in a mighty way? Absolutely. Is that the tip of the spear, so to speak? Sure it is. But I believe God isn't done even right here. And it means that we ought to be like Peter. Not apostles, not apostles. If any of you go around saying you're an apostle, I'm gonna be very worried for you, but um, we should be like Peter in that wherever God has us providentially, it, you know, he just happened, to, just happened to be at Lydda, and then he just happened to make it up to Joppa, and you just happened to be in Great Bend, Kansas, and maybe next week you just happen to wander over to, I don't know, Manhattan or some exotic place like that or, you know, even Larned or, Claflin, I don't know where God may take you, but, but wherever God has us, God leaves no stone unturned, and we should be his instrument to find people. And from your perspective, you didn't go looking sort of find them. You just find them, and you trust that God is behind that. You trust that God is sovereignly, providentially leading you into that scenario. 
If you're hearing this story today of this message concerning Christ and, and, and you've never really said yes to him, then I just want to hold him up before you and say, behold, behold our, our Savior, the kind of Savior he is, the kind of God that we're inviting you to. He seeks and saves the lost. He's like the shepherd, and that's such a beautiful picture, isn't it, where he goes and he finds the lamb and he puts him over his shoulder and he brings him home. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound good to you? He knows how to look. He's, he's like that woman overturning her whole house, sweeping, got the lamp on, looking. That, that God is seeking sinners, seeking sinners who, who deserve none of his grace and none of his mercy. And yet the gospel is being held out to you. And if you hear that gospel and you see the worth of the Lord Jesus and you believe that he died for your sins, then turn and believe in him and be found today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, we see that even as you were ready to really push down on the, on the gas pedal and take the gospel into the far reaches of the world, that you were still actively working in that land of Israel, and you were still going after your Old Testament people and, and, and finding them in weird little places like Lydda and Joppa. And, and Lord, I believe that you're still looking for people here in Great Bend. Um, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us that, that, that we have had such privilege and yet we have had so little fear of you. And uh, though we have the gospel, Lord, our hearts tend to get hard. I pray that you would encourage your people today that you are God who seeks that you would remind us, Lord, that, that we should be going here and there, that we should be finding, and, and that we should be telling people about the wonderful grace, the wonderful healing, saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do that, Lord, and, and if it be your will, I pray even now that through these words that you would find someone and that you would draw them to yourself. And we'll give you all the praise and glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen.